All right. And turning your Bibles to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. As we, uh, as we approach the home stretch of our walk through the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth, um, we come upon a real gem of scriptures, one of, the, one of my favorite passages in scripture. Some of it will sound familiar to you when we get to reading through it. This text has all the ingredients that make the study of this old book so pleasurable and profitable at the same time. And um, in the opening verses, you'll notice one of Scripture's most mysterious puzzles. And uh, how many of you like puzzles? Riddles, puzzles, things that make you go, oh, what are you talking about? Um, (laughs) We'll delve into that puzzle today and enjoy investigating some of the potential solutions to it. Also, as we get towards the end of the text this morning, we're going to see one of the most powerful, life-changing truths of Scripture, and that is the sufficient grace of God. In light of, of that truth, we'll also see some practical examples of how we should react um, to it. So let's dive right into it without much uh, further ado. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to read 10 verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with Verse 1, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God know it. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man... Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. For such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then am I strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for the encouragement that we find in this passage that is truly life-changing. I just pray, Lord, that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to us and let this take root in our hearts, that we might live lives that embrace the grace that you make available to us. And God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet come to that place in their life where they recognize the need for God's grace in salvation, I just pray that that they would be brought to that place today that they might accept Christ alone as their Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The primary truth of the passage is that familiar but precious refrain from the mouth of God to the heart of his child, My grace is sufficient for thee. How many have found comfort in those words over the years? Isn't that, isn't that powerful? My grace is sufficient for thee. That is the life changer. That's the answer that touches our hearts with which we can identify. These are the words of comfort that give us peace in the midst of the storm. And these words reassure us when we are overwhelmed and they give us hope when we are without hope, when we're discouraged. And now in Paul's life, there, there's, a, there's a context to God speaking these words into his life. And I, I think the context of this statement in Paul's life is important. Because as you, as I just asked you, have these words meant something to you in your life? Have, have they provided comfort to you? And, and most likely you thought of a time period in your life when you were really going through it, or perhaps now. <laughs> and, and those words spoke truth into your life that uh, was desperately needed. And... So let's go back into the verse and see how Paul gets to this place where God speaks to him with such powerful and practical words. In, in verse 1, I think we'll start in verse 1 because uh, the chapter kind of starts there. It's not... There's no new jokes here, just the old ones. Um, <laughs> it's not expedient for me doubtless to glory, he says. Right away we see Paul nods at the content of the previous chapter. You know, we, we, in the previous chapter, Paul was constantly apologizing for the boastful sound of his words. And uh, he was using some irony even. And here, in this opening phrase of chapter 12, he's acknowledging the awkwardness of his previous boasting. We saw that 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 had a distinct purpose. Paul wasn't being sinful in his boasting. There was some purpose behind it. It was couched in, in irony. But from the opening words of this chapter, it seems Paul is pretty happy to move on from that method of teaching. You can tell from the way he opened chapter 11 and the way he repeated um, that opening in chapter 11, he was never real comfortable lifting himself up. But it was, a, it was a powerful way to communicate what he needed to communicate to us, and we, we embraced that truth last week. So he announces that he's going to move on from, uh, from this, you know, this boasting theme, if you will. 
to speak of visions and revelations. Uh, that's an inter- interesting change of pace, isn't it? I mean, visions and revelations are fascinating things. I had some visions last night. And they didn't mean anything. It just meant that my brain was resting, right? <laughs> um, we're confident that this is not how God speaks to man today. Um, we have what Paul didn't have. We live in a time period um, to which Paul was transitioning. We have what, what the Apostle Peter claimed to be a more sure word of prophecy right here than these experiential revelations that Peter knew. Can I park there for just a minute? I always park there. <laughs> this is important to recognize. Because we tend to lean towards the experiences, don't we? Oh, I want to have an experience that I can remember. Let me think about it for a minute. You can't even remember your your friend's phone number half the time, right? What why would you want why would you want an experience instead of this? When there's chance of you not remembering it correctly? Right? <laughs> I mean this I can close this and come back to it and you know what? It's exactly the same. I have God's promise that He'll preserve it throughout the ages. From generation to generation. His very words. Peter. You all remember Peter, right? He had some experiences, didn't he? I mean, Peter walked on water. Now, that's an experience you'd like to have, right? Peter said, Lord, save me. Jesus reached down with his very hands and Pulled Peter out of the water. That was that was that that was an experience that I mean you got to admit you're, you're you're a little jealous, right? Yeah. But you know what Peter said? This is a more sure word of prophecy than his experiences. That's pretty powerful stuff. So yeah, experiences—they're interesting, all right. We all wish we could have some of those, but man, you can't really trust them. Right? So aren't you glad we have this, something we can trust? That is not to say that we're not interested in the experiences, the visions, the revelations. And looks like Paul had some visions and some revelations. There's something fascinating about special revelations from God in the past. Even though we know not to expect them today. They may be even more so, because more interesting, more fascinating, because we know not to expect them today, since we have the completed canon of Scripture. Verse 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3, are Paul's opening account of this revelation that he had, this seemingly out-of-body experience. Notice how unsure he is of the nature of this revelation. I love the way Paul uh, communicates this. He doesn't give the reader the idea that he's absolutely certain because he had this experience, this vision. Boy, Paul is all uncertain in how he communicates it. I think we can learn something 
of these types of experiences. They're always clouded by our inability to perceive and clouded by our inability to fully remember. What a blessing to have something more sure than this. However, Paul continues to do his best to relate his experience by way of illustration for our text, because really that's why he's bringing it up in the first place, to get to verses 9 and 10, wherein the primary truths of the passage reside. All right? So he seems to relate it in the second person, as if it was not necessarily he who had experienced it. Did you notice that? I knew a man, right? Um, that's third person, isn't it? So <laughs> the, he, he says, it, it's, it's, it's almost universally understood, by the way, that Paul is speaking of himself. And we're going to join the vast majority of Bible scholars and just assume that that's the case. I mean, it's pretty clear that that's just the, the, this third person that Paul is using is just uh, he's referring to himself. And as far as the nature of this vision, there's some wide disagreement. Um, so I'll give you my opinion on it from the for what it's worth department. Let's let's look at that um, vision. He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. And then in parentheses, you see that? Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. Right? God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. So, <laughs> you see in verses um, uh, 2 and 3 that uh, he, he's, he's, it's his opening account of this, of this revelation and this this experience seems to be to pretty clearly relate a time when Paul's spirit leaves his body. Thus the term out-of-body experience. Right? You've all heard that term, right? Yeah. Oh, Paul uses it right here. He says, I can't really explain this. It's like I was in the body, I was out of the body. I don't know what was going on, right? That's the problem with experiences. But it's interesting, right? He's relaying what as best he can. And now this, by definition, is death, by the way. That's what an out-of-body experience is by definition. It seems Paul may have died some 14 years previous. And evidenced by his use as God's pen in the current you know, um, letter here, he's alive again. Anyone here ever had that happen? Where, uh, probably should, I should not ask this. Um, I'm not asking that. Can you think of how this instance might fit into Paul's life? Did Paul ever die and come back to life? Anyone, anyone remember a time when Paul died and came back to life? I mean, it's not a normal thing, so it should stand out in Paul's ministry. I think he did. There's a story... In Luke's record of the actions of the Holy Spirit in the early days of the church, Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to, to Derby. Now, what it appears to me 
He said the Apostle Paul had, a, if not a death experience, a very near-death experience. It, it also seems that in the interim, while Paul was dead, he went to heaven. As we know, there are three heavens. Don't believe that there's more than three. Say, what are these three heavens? There's some say there's seven heavens. That's made up. Some say there's twelve heavens. You won't find that in the Bible either. But the Bible always speaks of three. There's that immediate area of the sky in which the birds fly and the clouds float. That's the first of the heavens. Look out the window. Heaven number one, right there. All right. And then we see, and then we see uh, the second heaven is the vast expanse of stars and planets that's termed, you know, the final frontier of space. Right. That's the that's the second heaven. And then there's the third heaven, the New Jerusalem, that eternal city of God, which uh, God, in which God is the light, and wherein is the street of gold and the mansions of the saints. This is the third heaven. Well, Paul died and found himself in this third heaven, that place where the soul of man is instantly in the presence of the Lord upon its departure from the body. Now, look at what the apostles' experience teaches us. So, and so that, that, that is, by the way, my theory of what Paul's talking about. I knew a man 14 years ago. You, you trace that back, and that's right about where the Apostle Paul in his first journey was stoned um, and drug out of the city and left for dead. So, um, look at what uh, the Apostles' experience teaches us. It teaches us that death is most certainly not annihilation. Alright? Death doesn't end us and our existence. In keeping with the rest of Scripture, we see here that when the body dies, the spirit of man, that is his soul, moves into eternity. The souls of the lost, we know from Scripture, go to a dismal holding place called hell awaiting the final judgment. The saved go immediately to this third heaven of which Paul speaks and, and, and where they find, where they await the final resurrection. This idea that there can be such a thing as an out-of-body experience reminds us of the dichotomy of man. We're not just flesh and bone. We're not just flesh and blood, I should say. We are physical and spiritual. We're made up of flesh, which is corporal, and spirit, which is non-physical. Now, verse 4 calls the third heaven paradise. That kind of brings in the designation of that former holding place for souls which was assimilated into the New Jerusalem at the resurrection of Christ. Paul notes here that he heard while in heaven words that were not lawful to speak under Jewish law. Did did you notice that in verse 4? He says how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for man to utter. So, He must be speaking of the name of God. That's the best I can come up with here because that was prohibited by Jewish law to utter. Um, How that name was pronounced, 
is a matter of debate now. No one knows what vowels were actually used in its verbalization. There's a lot of theories, and some people are absolutely certain they can tell you how the name of God is pronounced. And let me tell you something. Nobody knows, okay? So if someone tells you they're absolutely certain of this, they can't be, all right? There's no, nothing to base that on. So let's summarize. Paul got stoned to death. His body was drug outside the city walls. When he died from the violence of the hurled rocks and stones that rained against his flesh and his bones, his spirit left his battered body. And Paul's soul was transported immediately to the New Jerusalem where he heard the sounds of heaven, angels shouting praises to the Creator and saints singing the same. What a fantastic thing, huh? What a story to tell and a claim to be able to make. I have no reason to believe that anyone in this day and age could make that claim. But the Apostle Paul, on the other hand, it seems he's making that claim. He's doing so very carefully so as not so that we would not be so that we would not tend to build some major doctrine on it he's subjecting it to his imperfect uh, perception and experiences saying you know I couldn't really tell what was going on but he relates his experience nevertheless and you know one thing about Steve uh, about well I just blew my punchline one thing about Paul um, Getting stoned to death and drugged out of the city reminds me of some of another instance where a fellow got uh, stoned to death and had an experience in the presence of God. Right? That was how Paul uh, um, kind of came onto the scene. <laughs> it's almost almost uh, a weird justice going on there. Paul getting stoned to death. But anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, so. Paul has this experience. He'd seen heaven and he'd returned. He'd heard the voices of angels and he could tell the story. He'd had something to brag about in this experience. However, as you can see in verse 5, look at verse 5. Paul did not mean to boast about being special in his life or about any fleshly aspect of this experience. Because, you know, that's another trouble with experiences. They tend to become competitive and they tend to become objects of the temptation to boast. You get people starting to share their out-of-body experiences, and the next thing you know, you're trying to one-up each other. Oh, yeah? Well, I had this one instance after eating a big pizza all by myself one night. And uh, no. <laughs> and so... So they tend to become competitive, and Paul states here that any boasting on his part is, is going to regard the spiritual aspect of the experience. In other words, he may brag about God's salvation of his soul, which was partially evidenced by the experience. He says, of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory but in my infirmities. In verse 6 now, as you, if you're following along, we're in verse 6 now. Paul acknowledges this temptation, this desire to brag. But he commits 
to not be so foolish as to do so. As a matter of fact, he makes a point of saying that he doesn't want anyone to think more highly of him than is appropriate. He's experienced what no man on earth could claim. He's gone to heaven and he's returned and this might of itself make Paul famous. It might cause Paul, it might cause Paul to be put on a pedestal, then to put Paul on a, a pedestal and esteem him more highly than they should esteem him. And this is a danger to the cause of Christ because it takes men's eyes off of Christ and puts them on other men. Isn't that also the case when we relay these experiences? You know what they tend to do? They have the tendency to distract from this. They have the tendency to distract from him. And they have the tendency to lift up the person that had the experience. And Paul says, this I do not want to happen. He says, I, I, I have the desire to brag about this. He says, I, I have the temptation to boast. I'm not going to be so foolish as to do that. And what he says, he says, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. He says, you know what? I recognize the danger um, of someone thinking more highly of me than, uh, than they ought to. There's another danger that Paul sees, and he mentions it in verse 7. What Paul knows is a very real possibility is that he might himself become prideful for the privileges that he had enjoyed. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. You know, this is a, this is a danger for anyone who's blessed by God. You know, we've talked about the vision and the revelation that Paul had and um, that's a that's a puzzle in Scripture that's fun to talk about and try to figure out what on earth. When did that happen in Paul's life? What exactly happened? Sounds like he wasn't real sure, but it's fun to talk about. Now we're going to move on from that a little bit and see Paul makes a practical application about the danger of becoming prideful when God blesses you with something special. And, you know, if you find yourself in a position of ministry or in spiritual leadership, which is a blessing beyond measure, you must know the danger of pride. Pride is, and Paul is real concerned about this. You can see he notices, he, he notes especially in verse 7, the profitability of his trials, is that in, of this particular trial, is that he would not become prideful. Pride is the icy water that will drown the fire of your spirit-filled ministry. Pride is the wrecking ball that will demolish any God-glorifying edifice that you build. It's the poison that will steal the life from your efforts for the name of Christ. And what Paul points out is that God knew of the danger of pride and he provided a way for Paul to remain humble. Don't you love it? When God figures out a way to keep you humble. Yeah. Paul didn't really like it either. 
Paul speaks of a thorn in the flesh. You like having thorns in your flesh? Not real fun. A messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. That's not buffet, by the way. It's buffet. means to beat against him. Like Floyd Mayweather or whatever. Beat against him. He's a boxer, right? Yeah. Did I say it right? Okay. I think he's fighting sometime soon. Um, <laughs> these are strong negative terms, though. Messenger of Satan? Seriously? <laughs> right? Um, these strong negative terms are about something that Paul absolutely hated to have in his life. Maybe you can identify with this. Is there some aspect of your life that you see as an irritant, as maybe as injurious? Paul even related it to the devil himself. It was such a negative force in his life that he felt like Job, whose life was plagued by the devil with God's permission. There have been many theories about Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks about. And I think we can all identify with this thorn in the flesh, this having something in your life that you can't stand, that you just wish, oh my God. Will you just take this away? Life will be better if you take this away. I'll be better. (laughs) You know, there's different ideas of what this thorn in the flesh was. Maybe you have some theories. I think none are really certain, but perhaps that's with purpose. Some consider this thorn to be a person who opposed Paul. I mean, especially in this context. That this thorn in the flesh that Paul had was somebody that was just made Paul's life miserable. Um, Some think it to be some sort of palsy that affected his physical appearance. Because Paul often spoke of the meanness of his appearance. Some think it was his failing eyesight. That's maybe the most popular thing. Regardless, Paul hated it. He couldn't stand it. In verse 8, we see that Paul testifies to having begged God to take this ailment or trial away from him. Repeatedly, Paul asks God to remove it. And God never did. How about that? I mean, some people would like to tell you, well, look, God doesn't want you to suffer. God wants you to just be happy and in pleasure all your life. And if you're suffering, you just need to believe. And God will take it away. And you'll be happy and rich. Especially if you give to me. That's usually part of the message. That's usually the conclusion somewhere. (laughs) But the Apostle Paul, I mean, this was something that he did not want in his life. He begged God to take it away. God never took it away. But Paul did see the value in this trial. What he saw is that it kept him humble. It kept him from allowing his privileges to puff him up. He also got an answer from God that is the primary message of our text. And I believe it is often what God says to us when we beg for relief from some trial in our lives. 
And and here's where, just in conclusion, we're here right at the end of the text, just a couple of verses left, okay? And this is where we're going to bring the, the central truth in and, and, and see how important it is in our lives. Identify with me right now. You've got some trial in your life. You've had some thorn in the flesh, some messenger of Satan sent to buffet you. And you'd like it to be gone. And God says, not taking that away. You're going to keep that. (laughs) And you beg God, take it away. God, would you just make my life easier? God says, no. Nope, not doing that. The question is then, are you willing to accept God's answer in this? When you beg God repeatedly for relief from whatever tormentor presides over your life, and you hear loud and clear that no relief is coming, when instead you hear God say, I am all you need. And my grace is sufficient for this. How do you respond? I mean, that's the gist of it. That's the import of the passage. Is God's grace enough for you? We know from his own proclamation that it is sufficient. The question then resides with us. Will we embrace God's grace as our portion in life. Let me challenge you this morning to count His grace as sufficient. It's a surrender to the truth that God proclaims in our text that His grace is sufficient for us. Will you do this this morning? Will you count His grace as sufficient in your life? We see in these last two verses of our text both the motivation for doing so and the practical instruction for how to do so. See first why we must count his grace as sufficient. You see, um, in, in verse 9 he said, Unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. And here, here he gives this motivation, this reason to accept that truth. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. We must accept God's grace as sufficient and count His grace as sufficient for us because He will be perfected in your weakness. You realize that how weakness works in your life? Weakness is like, it's like an empty place where you don't have anything left, where you can't, there's no more resources inside of you. And in that empty place, God's strength can come and fill that empty place. And that's how his strength is perfected in your weakness. If there is no weakness, then there is no emptiness, there is no place for God's strength to come and fill you. There's no room for both your power and God's power. Your absence of strength is the perfect place 
for his strength to reside. We speak here, by the way, not of weakness in temptations, so much as human frailty. I'm not talking about your tendency to sin, all right? That's another issue for another sermon. We'll deal with that, don't worry. (laughs) I'm talking about human frailty. Something that you can't fix by changing how you're living your life. Something that God would literally have to take away from you in order for it to be gone. Something that is just your lot in life. That's the, that's the infirmity. That's the weakness that I'm talking about. That is where God's strength can be made perfect. So we must count his grace as sufficient because he will be perfected in your weakness. The next thing that I see in this passage is that his grace makes it possible for the power of Christ to rest upon you. He says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Look, if you'll recognize God's grace as sufficient and appreciate the opportunity of your infirmities, those things that are completely out of your control, those weaknesses that are completely beyond what you can affect, then there will be a place for God's power to rest on you. You know, if I were to take a show of hands and ask you how many of you would like God, the, the, the power of Christ to rest upon your life, I'm pretty sure every hand would go up, right? Re, you realize this, the price of God's power resting on your life is infirmity in your life. To some extent, this mirrors the process of salvation. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You know how you come to Christ and God um, pours his Holy Spirit into you and permanently saves you? You know, know, that process has to come with you being empty first. You've got to be... At that place in your life where you recognize I've got nothing to put on the table. Nothing of value to earn my position with him. Do you want the confidence of operating in the power of Christ? The Apostle Paul said because he counted God's grace sufficient, he said I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Look, if you are depending on your strength, you will come to the end of it. But if, you, if you're depending on the power of Christ, there's no end to that power. And the Apostle Paul said confidently, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, now look to the practical advice that the Apostle gives here. You see it in just the last verse. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And now in verse 10, there's just a list of some practical advice that he has for us, some steps that we can take 
that will help us to count God's grace as sufficient. The first thing I see is, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Take pleasure in infirmities. The, you know, the, the, the old English word infirmities literally means weakness. But when you hear the word weakness, you might think of uh, weakness under temptation. Infirmities literally means part of your body doesn't work, right? It's, it, ta- it talks about being infirm. And that really puts our mind in the right place. And, and uh, we've got to learn to take pleasure in our infirmities and our weaknesses. This is the physical shortcomings of the flesh. It's not the sinful tendencies or failures in times of temptation. It's our inabilities of which Paul speaks here. We're to embrace them as opportunities for Christ to shine. Take pleasure in weakness. We've got to find value in those things that we cannot do. We've got to find the, the weakness and the infirmities inside of us as opportunities for Christ to shine. The next thing we see is take pleasure in reproaches. What is a reproach? The reproaches of which Paul speaks here are the besmirchings of our names, the smearing of our reputations. We all love that, right? When we are wholly innocent and someone is smearing our reputation... Oh, that's fun. But <laughs> this is something of which Paul was, uh, was, with which Paul was very familiar. People were always talking badly about him. What Paul saw was this is an opportunity for God's truth to prevail. This was an opportunity for, for him to trust that the truth will always rise to the top. That takes some special grace. This is how Paul counted God's grace as sufficient. He didn't step up and try to right all the wrongs himself so that he might not have to pay the price of reproach. But rather, he trusted in God during reproaches. He took pleasure in the reproach for the opportunity that it gave him to glorify Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14, we see Peter says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. It may not make sense to our human mind that reproach could be a good thing in our life. But we see here from both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul that this can be God's great opportunity to be glorified. The third step that I can see in our text, in verse 10, it says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches in necessities. You know what necessities are? Necessities are things you can't live without. Right? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about being poor He's talking about not having what you need. He's talking about being in want. Take pleasure in want. Oh, it's so fun to be poor. (laughs) It's so fun not to have nice things. Right? That's difficult, isn't it? You know what makes it okay? 
the grace of God. Riches tend to blind us to reality, while destitution often sharpens our vision of Christ. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13 says, Not that I speak in respect of want. In other words, Paul says, This want has not overcome me. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It is in the context of need that we find him to be all-sufficient. And if that means we are destitute, if, if the result of being destitute is that Christ becomes all I need, that's a small price to pay to count his grace sufficient. The next thing that we see is persecutions. Take pleasure in persecutions. These are the active attacks of people against you for being identified with Christ. The fact is we know little of this in America as contrasted with the rest of the world. But this is on the increase here as well. Be ready to see the value in persecutions that his grace might be counted sufficient therein. The fifth Practical step we see, and don't worry, there's only six. Take pleasure in distresses. You know what distresses are? Well, just look at that last part of the word, you'll get an idea. For a clear understanding of the word, focus on the main part of it. The stresses of life that come as a result of having chosen to walk the path of Christ. And these must be opportunities for his grace to be revealed as sufficient. The sixth practical step that I can see is embrace his strength. Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 says, For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. In Second Corinthians 13, we'll look at this in a couple weeks, what we see here is that Jesus Christ embraced certain weakness so that the power of God might prevail. Understand, for you to count his grace as sufficient, you need to be familiar with his strength. The only way you become familiar with his strength and embrace his strength is to stop depending on your own. Laying down your will so that he might prevail will result in the all-sufficiency of his grace being revealed. Have you come to this place in regards to your soul where you recognize yourself to be completely empty of anything of value to God? If you come to that place and you recognize that Jesus Christ has everything that you need for your salvation, and you receive him by faith, you trust in Jesus Christ as your only Savior, then you can receive the the blessings of heaven. If you haven't done that, you can do that while we sing I Surrender All. We're going to be singing that in just a second. But listen, if you've come to Christ, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your only Savior, not trusting in your ability to stay on the path or your ability to 
um, to, to do anything for him but trusting only in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then perhaps you need to be reminded, like the Apostle Paul needed to be reminded, to count his grace as sufficient in your life. To learn to be satisfied with him so that his glory might shine through in your life. Go ahead and stand as we sing this first stanza of I Surrender All. And you make the decision the Lord would have you to make as we sing it.